0: Let's pray. Lord, uh, we give you thanks for this evening. We give you thanks for the opportunity to um, dive into your word and uh, understand your thoughts and think your thoughts after you. And I pray again this evening that we would be uh, greatly encouraged by what we uh, interact with this evening. So thank you for your goodness, and thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the King of the kings and the Lord of the lords, ruling and reigning and one day returning to finish, to complete what you've started, to restore all that is broken. And we gather tonight in that great hope. So uh, come and be with us and encourage us in this time. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Marcy, would you um, sort of tell everybody, What you told me this morning. Oh,
1: okay. (laughs) Go. There you go. Okay, I went to the doctor. This isn't Marcy Scott. This is Marcy Krupski, and I come from Chicago, and i got to commute every week now. That's what the doctor says. He says I got progressive recapitulation, and it's real bad. He took three different x-rays, and they was all from different perspectives, and he says, i got to have my hermeneutics out.
0: What? <laughs> oh. And so when are they going to do this to you?
1: Well, they don't know. It might be three and a half years from now, and it might be seven years, but i got to go through a lot of tribulation before they do
0: it. <laughs> okay. But,
1: I, I mean, he said that maybe your talking would, would determine when they do it.
0: I see. Okay, maybe me and talking would determine when they do it.
1: That's right.
0: Okay, thank you. (laughs) So we all got a case of progressive recapitulation, and we all got to have our hermeneutics out. And it may take three and a half years, but it may take 1,260 days, or it could take 42 months. Which is all kind of the same, the same thing from different perspectives. There you go. So okay, okay, right? Yep. Not an open forum, just an introduction. Okay. All right. Let me um, thank you, Marcy. I th- I think that's uh, you know that's pretty clever there. Thanks a lot. Okay. All right. This is um, this is session two. And um, what we're going to do this evening uh, is kind of continue what we started the last time. Um, and re- really what I'm, what I'm trying to do in these first couple of sessions is put the book of the Revelation in, the, in a broader perspective, really the perspective of the whole of the Bible. Um, everybody comes to the Revelation with with what I would call an interpretive grid. They they come to the revelation with certain assumptions. And I'm just really kind of um, playing my hand here, if you will, and and trying to help you understand how I come to this book. I mentioned uh, the last time that um, my understanding of the book is different from what is the predominant and prevailing view and understanding of the book. Um, but but, um, but and I was um, reminded of this after the session the last time among among people who are theologically reformed um, um, this is not a minority perspective it's it's really the perspective that um, folks from this particular branch of the the tree which is the broader family of Christianity. Um, this is the perspective from which we come to this book. So um, when I say that it's a minority view, I'm, 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 I'm just telling you that it's a minority view with respect to what is commonly understood to be kind of the teaching of the revelation as well as um, uh, other related matters, particularly the end times. And so I want to get into some of that this evening and, again, just sort of Play my hand, if you will, and help you understand how I understand the Bible to think about these things. So um, again, we're dealing with things from 30,000 feet. We're going to begin to get into a couple of the details tonight, but last time and this time um, is big picture stuff, 30,000 foot stuff. Let me just review some things. I've got an outline up here on the board of where we're going to be going let me, let me give you f- just five points of review from the last time. First, the basic theme um, I would characterize in this way. Christ is king and sovereign over all. He is reigning now, and he will reign until he returns. And when he returns, he will return to overthrow evil, fulfilling The first promise, the seminal promise of the Bible, Genesis 315, the promise that God made to the serpent that from the seed of the woman one would come who would crush the head of the serpent, and in crushing the head of the serpent, he would overthrow and eradicate evil. So Christ is king. He is reigning now, and he will continue to reign until his return, at which time he will overthrow evil. That's what the book is about, basically. And here's the second thing. The basic purpose of the book, if that's the basic theme and aim of the book, the basic purpose of the book is pastoral. It's a pastoral concern designed to provide encouragement to Christians in the midst of tribulation, hope in the midst of suffering. Okay, Hope in the midst of suffering. It's, uh, it's, It's not all that different frankly, from what Paul, um, in the particular passage of Scripture that we looked at this morning and we'll look at uh, for the next couple of weeks, is doing, giving to believers who find themselves in the midst of real suffering uh, a real hope. And that's, that's what Jesus' intent is. He, he is a pastor. Uh, he is the shepherd of his flock. He loves his people. And as the shep- shepherd of his flock... Um, he gives this revelation, this uh, vision to John in order to encourage his people who find themselves in the midst of tribulation. That's number two. Number three, and connected to this, it's important to remember that the book is written for the people of John's day. Okay, It's written for the people of John's day. It's not written for people living in some far-off time. It's written for the people of John's day and for the people of God across this entire period between the Advents, between the first and second comings of Christ. Um, John uh, tells us, Revelation 1.9, and I I think this is a very, very important verse for interpreting uh, the Revelation. And and I will emphasize this again, uh, saying what I said the, the last time. It's very, very important that we listen to the Bible as the Bible talks about itself, if you will. Okay. So when John says in Revelation 1, verse 9, referring to himself, says that he is the partner of those who will hear this book read, their partner both in the kingdom and in the tribulation, And in the patient endurance that is in Christ Jesus, right, he's helping us to understand, he's giving us some interpretive keys or some peepholes through which to look at things that are coming. So that when the tribulation is talked about, when in chapter 7 there is a vision of all of these who have come out of the great tribulation, we're already set up for understanding who that is. John is one of them. And he's writing to others who find themselves in the tribulation, this period between the Advents. And then there's this fourth principle. So so the book is written for the people of John's day and for the people of God across the entire period between the Advents. It's not written about something that John and his contemporaries would have no interest in. It's, It's written to them, given to them, and given for them. And then here's the fourth thing, this disease that Marcy referred to. What we want to watch for is what uh, I and others have called progressive recapitulation. And here's what we mean by that. We mean two things. We mean there is movement in the book, and if you read the book, from the seals to the trumpets to the bowls, there is movement through the book in the direction of the final overthrow of Babylon, the beast, the false prophet, and Satan. Okay? So there is, pro- there is progress through the book or progression through the book. But there is also recapitulation. And what that, simply, um, what that word simply refers to is this technique that's employed, which John employs, for showing us, um, events from more than one perspective, okay? And I think the last time we were together, just as an example of recapitulation, I suggested that you read chapter 12 of the Revelation, which I think uh, is really represents the heart and the center of the book. Um, the first six verses and then the last verses, beginning at verse 7 and following, describe this conflict between uh, the seed of the woman the child, and his great adversary, the serpent, the dragon. Same events, what ties those events together are these um, time designations, 1,260 days, plus themes, being in the wilderness and being cared for by God. Um, those, Those two passages describe the same event, but from different perspectives. And so the event, if you will, is recapitulated, and the event is the conflict between uh, Christ, uh, the seed of the woman, and the serpent. Uh, So when you recap something, you're just, you know, it's, you get it, and then you get it again, and then you get it again. And we'll see that as we make our way through the book. And I'd encourage you to read the book in that way. Read it looking for uh Common sorts of images that recapitulate one another. And then here's the, here's the last thing. This is a book to be seen, if I can put it that way. It is a book to be seen. If you look at uh, the first uh, few verses of the Revelation, John in verse 3 says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Blessed is the one who reads, and blessed are those who hear. Now, the way this would have worked in in John's day is that after he had um, completed this letter, it would have been circulated among these seven churches. Um, People would not have had, obviously, would not have had copies of the Revelation like we have, like I have. I have this beautiful, wonderful ESV study Bible that has introductory material, and it's got a map, and it has an outline, and it's got a a short article called Millennial Views, and it has uh, another short article called Schools of Interpretation, all of this notation stuff, right? You you didn't go home in 94 or 95 A.D., and and sit at your desk or sit by the fireplace and whip out your copy of the Revelation with all of these articles and notes and stuff to try to get a handle on this thing. Here's what happened. You were quite likely very familiar, or at least somewhat familiar, with the basic themes of the scriptures, meaning the first uh, 39 books of the Old Testament, and the main characters of those books. Uh, and you would have had some familiarity with the imagery that is employed in this book and so when you when you when you sit in a setting like this and you listen to this book being read not just a couple of verses as in, is increasingly the case in in the american church but but long long passages of scripture you, you it's i mean it's very easy to imagine people closing their eyes and seeing pictures in their minds because of all of this imagery that is employed, taken out of the Old Testament uh, and employed by John to tell the story that he's telling. Okay, So you, you really have to think of the, of the Revelation not, not as a, a, a kind of an historical narrative, not as prophetic, although there are some prophetic portions to it. You really have to think of it as a kind of a picture book that employs all of this incredible Old Testament imagery. All of the images found in the Revelation have their origins in the Old Testament. Okay? That's where the imagery comes from. So it's highly symbolic. Uh, the, symb- the symbols are taken from the Old Testament. And it is, again, a book I would suggest, and it's not my suggestion, lots of commentators suggest this, but it's a book to be seen as you're hearing it. Okay? It, ap- it appeals to the to the imagination employing. Uh, all of this highly symbolic um, imagery from the Old Testament. Okay, so just, just some points of review, some of what we talked about um, the last time we were together. Now, here, here's what I want to do. <laughs> Good luck, right? Here's what I want to do. I, I really want to try to, to kind of blow through the, the material for this evening and and try to leave some time for you to ask questions at the end. So, if, as I'm going through this material, something comes to mind, you, you have a question you'd like to ask, I will do my dead-level best to give us time at the end for you to ask those questions, okay? So hold the question, um, and then at the end, we'll, um, we'll have a time of Q&A. Okay, now, let's let's ask this first question. As we come to this, this book, just looking at the first three verses, um, let, let me read them. Um, and, then, and then ask the question, when will the things seen in the revelation come to pass? When will the things seen in the revelation come to pass? Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now, what does John mean when he says soon in verse 1 and the time is near in verse 3? Um, and the answer to that question um, leads to some related questions: How does the, vibe, the Bible view time how, how does the Bible view time meaning meaning the flow and history of god 's redemptive purposes? How does the Bible view that? and what are the last days or the latter days, and when are they? okay Those are some related questions that that are, um, I think, very much a part of any discussion or conversation that you have about the Revelation. And again, what I want to do is try to take the Bible itself seriously. It's its own use of this sort of language. So let's, let's take this in this way. What, what does the phrase in verse 3, the time is near, mean? What does that mean, the time is near? A good literal translation, a fair and literal translation, is simply the time is at hand or the time is present. It is at hand. So whatever it is that John is talking about and seeing and describing, what he's suggesting to us, what Jesus through John is telling us, is that these things are at hand. Okay, They are present. Now, let me give you, um, we've all got our favorite passages, right? I mean, we've all probably got 20 or 30 favorite passages. It just depends on the day, right? But let me, let me give you one of my, really one of my favorite passages. And it's come to be one of my favorite passages in probably the last 10 or 12 years. And it's Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 where this very same language, very same word, phrase is used. Um, This is immediately following the temptation of Jesus after John has announced the coming of the promised one, which is very significant. John the Baptist has, or John the Baptizer, we should say, because he really was a Presbyterian, he wasn't a Baptist. John the Baptizer, we should say, announces the appearing of the long-awaited Messiah. Verses 12 and 13, Jesus is tempted 40 days. And then after the temptation, we read this. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What time is fulfilled? Well, the time time that is fulfilled is the whole of that time from that first promise, the seminal promise of Genesis 3.15, all across the whole of the rest of the Old Testament, through Malachi, through the 400 years of silence, to the appearing of John and now the appearing of Jesus. What is promised there, everything that that time points to, Jesus is saying, that time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. It is here. It has arrived. Now, how is it arrived? Well, it arrives in the person of the king. When the king appears, he embodies all of the authority, all of the power, all of the characteristics and features of the kingdom. And so what you have in Jesus is the presence of the kingdom. And here's what I love about the first chapter of, uh, of Mark. Um, Jesus, by the beginning of his ministry, through the beginning of his ministry, begins the business of, of fulfilling Genesis three fifteen. I think I've I know I've made this point before, and if, if you didn't register this point before, please register this point now. The first miracle that Jesus performs in Mark's gospel is the miracle of healing or delivering a demon possessed man. The longest narrative of a miracle any place in the New Testament is Mark chapter 5, where Jesus heals Legion, who is not possessed by one demon, but who is possessed by hundreds and thousands of demons. That's why his name is Legion. And he does it with a single word. And what you have, both in in Mark uh, 1, verses um, 21 and following, and Mark chapter 5, What you have is a picture of what it is the king is going to do when he comes with all of the authority and all of the power and all of the features and characteristics of the kingdom. He is going to destroy his enemy. Right? He's going to begin to crush the head of the serpent. So what you have then with the arrival of Jesus is the arrival of the king, And the arrival of the kingdom. And Jesus says, the kingdom is here, it's present. Now, is it here in its fullness? Is it here in its final and consummated, completed form and manifestation? No, it isn't. It's here, it is inaugurated, but it isn't completed. And this is, this is, a again, a, I think a critical point for understanding what it is that's going on in the New Testament, what it is, frankly, that's going on in your life right now, your salvation, and what it is that, that, that is going on with respect to the kingdom of God. And here's the, here's the phrase that we like to use. I didn't write it up here, um, but I should have. Where's my... Here it is. It's, it's this simple phrase... Already and not yet. Already and not yet. Look, we had an example of this this morning. Did you catch it? Did anybody catch it this morning? We had an example of, of already, not yet, in the text that we read this morning. Anybody pick it up? Come on, y'all. We can do this. Well, Paul says in verse 17 of Romans chapter 8, says we are children of God. Uh, We have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And then verse 23. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the, the redemption of our bodies, right? So we are children, we are sons and daughters, we are cherished, we are honored, we, we have this incredible exalted place and standing but we don't have the full realization of it. And when we have not only the redemption of our souls, but the redemption of our bodies and the reunion of our souls and bodies at the return of Christ, in which we will live in the new heaven and the new earth forever and ever, then we will have the full realization of our adoption. So we have it and we don't have it. It's here, but it isn't here. It's already, but it's not yet. And that's a critical thing, I think, for understanding um, how to think about the Bible, how even to think about your own salvation. Are you saved? Now, don't hesitate. Please say it with all of the assurance and all of the full, I mean, yeah! Are you saved? Okay, now let me ask you again. Are you saved? Well, now give me the other answer. No, you're not. You are saved You are being saved, and you will be saved. Okay? Okay? Right. Yeah. So it's an already-not-yet thing. All right? So if we're going to understand kind of what is going on in the Bible and the way the Bible thinks about time, meaning the unfolding of, of God's redemptive purposes, we have to understand this tension that there is between what is already true, already present, in the case of the kingdom of God, inaugurated, we'll come back to this in a minute, in the case of the kingdom of God, inaugurated but not consummated, in the case of your salvation, begun but not completed. You're saved, you're being saved, that's sanctification, you you are saved. That's justification. You're being saved. That's your sanctification, and you will be saved. That's your glorification. Okay. So, in in verse one, when uh, John uses this language of soon, what is he saying? Is he saying that everything contained in the twenty two chapters of the Revelation is imminent? That it's going to happen within the next 24, 36, 48, 50 hours or days? No. What he's saying is simply that the time has arrived when these things which are being described in this book have begun to happen. Okay? These things which are described in this book has begun to happen. And clearly, it's going to take time for it to be completed and here's a little, a little uh, hint with respect to that. If you look at Revelation chapter 6, here John has said uh, the time is near, the time is at hand. Um, these things uh, that, that are being discussed uh, are, are coming to pass soon, meaning, meaning simply that the things that are being described in this book, the time for them having arrived, the unfolding of them is imminent. Um, clearly it's going to take some time for all of this to be completed because as you look at the opening of the seals and you come to the fifth seal, Revelation 6, verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Now look, see, I'm sorry, but I have to stop and I have to preach for just a second. The the Bible doesn't ever, no book of the Bible ever falls out of the sky as some sort of theoretical and speculative tome about some thing. The books of the Bible are given to real people living in real places and in real time. And if you're living at the time that John is living, when there is fairly widespread persecution, when the kind of thing that you read about in Acts chapter 8, where Paul has letters and, he, and he's ravaging the church and he's arresting people and throwing them in prison and he's prosecuting charges against them, that stuff is happening, okay? And that means that fathers and mothers are separated from each other. That means that parents are taken away from their children and they're put in prison and they're arraigned and they're tried and they're executed. Or they're simply mauled in mob action in villages and towns throughout the Roman Empire. And so the question is, isn't it? The question is, probably two questions, where are these people? Where are these people? These people who have loved Jesus and have been persecuted and have died, where are they? Paul's answering that question uh, in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. Now, brothers, concerning those who have fallen asleep, let me tell you. Okay? Well, that's what that's. Jesus loves his church. He cares about his people. He wants his people to know comfort and encouragement in the midst of real tribulation. So, what about these folks who have been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne? Verse 10 they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? What's happened to these folks, and how much longer is this going to go on? And here's the encouraging word, which kind of ain't so encouraging. Here's the encouraging word, verse 11. They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So, so what is, you know, what's in view here? It's it's pastoral encouragement. The people who are receiving this book are being told, "Look, this, you know, the game is not going to be over for a while. This is going to go on for a while, and more people are going to suffer and die because of their faithfulness to the Word of God as witnesses to the Lord Jesus Christ." So soon, even from even from considering internally. Things that are said in the Revelation soon doesn't mean that everything described in this book is imminent, is going to happen within the next two weeks or or even two years. So what does it mean? Again, let me just say it again. What does soon mean? It simply means that these things which John is describing in this book are beginning to happen. The time for the unfolding of these things is at hand. Here's a very interesting uh, passage, by the way, um, which, if I'm not careful, is going to elicit another sermon. Romans 16, 20. Here's, here's an, it's interesting to me that Paul uses this very same language. This is at the end of his, this great letter, right? In verse 20, he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now, what is that all about? The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Well, he uses that very same word. He uses the word soon, okay? And I think we understand it in the way that we understand soon in Revelation 1.1. And I think we understand it as a kind of a progressive thing. He's, he's providing encouragement to these Roman Christians, Now, the question is, so the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. How's he going to do that? How is God going to crush Satan under the feet of believers living in Rome? Well, here's how. In the preaching of the gospel. In the preaching of the gospel. And if you go back to Luke chapter 10 verses 17 to 19, you get this, this, uh, the, it's the, the story of the return of the 72. They've gone out in Jesus' name. They've preached the gospel. They've healed. They've done all kinds of things. They come back and they report to Jesus that even the demons are subject to them in his name. And Jesus' response is to say, I saw Satan fall like lightning to the ground. Now, what happens when the gospel is preached, friends? The gospel of Jesus Christ, empowered by the spirit of Jesus Christ, continues the work, I love this language, continues the work of dethroning and decapitating the serpent until that day when the king comes to complete that dethroning and complete that decapitating. That's what's going on right now. It's an already and a not yet. It's really happening every you know we lose sight of it every every one of you sitting in this room tonight every single one of you is a prisoner of Jesus Christ having been rescued from the prison house of Satan you've been delivered from bondage and sin and death and you've been delivered in to the kingdom of light and life how did that happen it happened because the reigning king of glory is progressively dethroning and decapitating the serpent until that day when he comes to finish what he started. Okay. So what are we talking about? What is this time um, that we're referring to here? Well, this, this time is the time when these things that are described in the Revelation begin to unfold um, across the whole of this period between the first and second advents. Interesting, if you, if you look at the end of, of the Revelation, chapter 22, verse 10. And if you can do this quickly, flip back to Daniel, who is one of the Old Testament prophets upon whom the Revelation depends heavily. Flip back to Daniel, chapter 12. Daniel is given a whole bunch of visions that involve beasts and horns and heads and and all kinds of crazy things. And in verse 4 of Daniel 12, Daniel is told to shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. That's really interesting. Until the time of the end. And we're going to, in just a minute, it's going to become clear that the time of the end was inaugurated at the time of the ascension of Jesus Christ. And so the things that are sealed up, the things that are um, kept from view, if you will, will shut up the words, seal the book until the time of the end, the significance, the meaning of those things becomes clear at the time of the end, and the time of the end is inaugurated by the arrival of the king. And when the king comes, then the stuff that you see in Daniel and all of the rest of the prophets begins to make sense. But the words are shut up, the words are sealed, because the times to which Daniel is referring are way off in the distance. They're way off in the distance. But if you look at Revelation 22, verse 10, Jesus gives this instruction to John, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of the book, for the time is at hand. It's not off in the distance. It's right here and right now. So all of this is just just to make the point... Um, that, that the revelation, in t- 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 again, I'm trying to take seriously what the Bible says about itself. The revelation, the time period that the revelation um, is describing for us arrived at the time of John, in the days of John. Okay? That's what he means when he says soon, and that's what he means when he says the time is near okay now let's let's press on a little bit and um move to this next this next question how then does the Bible see time, meaning how does the Bible view the the flow of redemptive history um, And what we want to try to do is view this from the perspective of the Old Testament. We want to ask first, how did the Old Testament view the unfolding story of redemption and and basically the 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 whole of God's redemptive purpose is divided in half between this age and the age to come okay this age and the age to come and the language that is used to describe the age to come is the last days or the latter days or phrases like at that time and afterward okay so on On the other side of the cross, as the prophets are looking down the corridor of history and they're giving all of this information, which Peter tells us they're trying to understand, they're trying to discern the time and the person when all of this stuff is going to come to pass. They're looking down the corridor of history from this human perspective in the midst of this age. This age after the fall, this age very much in need of redemption, and they're looking forward to the age to come. And the language that is used is the language of the last days, the latter days, at that time, afterward. Those are phrases that you see in the prophets. Now, let me give you some examples really quickly. Look at Joel chapter 2. And here's, here's what I want to... I'll just be right out there, okay? What I want to show you and prove to you, if I can, is that the last days, the latter days, the time that the prophets were looking forward to, arrived with the incarnation, the life, the death, the resurrection, and especially the ascension of Jesus Christ. That's when the last days arrived. Okay? If you ask... Look, if you... Okay, I'm going to get myself in trouble with this one because we're not going to have time to answer the question that will arise when I put it this way. If you ask ten Christians, are we in the last days, they will say yes. When you ask them the question, how do you know that we're in the last days, what kinds of things will they say? Wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, nation rising against nation, all of that kind of stuff. That's what they say. Okay. Now, this is the thing I don't have time for unless you want to take time for it in the Q&A. Jesus said about wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, nation rising against nation, these things are just the beginnings of the birth pangs. The end is not yet. The end is not yet. Okay. What is the harbinger of the return of Christ? Go read Matthew 24. Jesus will tell you, okay? The thing I want to prove to you now is that these words, you find these words, words that are used to describe the age to come, these words are used to describe what happened following the incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, particularly including the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, okay? All right, so let's look at Joel, chapter 2. Back there in your Old Testament. Hosea, Joel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel. Joel 2, verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward. Okay? It shall come to pass afterward. Okay? This is, this is Joel. God's, God's telling him something's going to happen down the corridor of history afterward. Okay, afterward. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days, it's another one of the phrases that's used, in those days I will pour out my spirit. Okay, a a prophecy concerning the age to come. Look at Acts chapter 2. And keep your finger in Joel because um, you'll note when you get to Acts chapter 2 the way in which the Septuagint, which is what would have been cited, and if you have a question about that, ask me, but um, notice in verse 28 of Joel, two, or 20 of Joel 2, and it shall come to pass afterward. Then notice in Acts chapter 2, how that language changes just a bit. This is verse 16. For these people, 15, these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Now, what is, what is Peter saying? Peter is saying that what was anticipated, what was prophesied, what, what God gave as a message of hope to the people of God at the time of Joel is fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. And the language that he uses is this language. The last days. The latter days. Okay? Look at Amos, chapter 9, verse 11. And then you're going to want to flip ahead to Acts, chapter 15. And again, I I just find it really interesting how these little phrases like, afterward, or in the last days, in this case, in that day, um, and after this, how interchangeably these phrases work. Okay, They all mean the same thing. They're all referring to the same period of time. So here's the prophecy from, from Amos. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Okay, now now look, let's, let's get this. this. You know, this is prophetic language. Again, looking to a future age, looking to a future time when the torn down booth of David is repaired. Its breaches are repaired. Its ruins are raised up. It is rebuilt as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord. Now look over at Acts chapter 15. Now now think about this. This is critically important for understanding what is going on on this side of the cross. And again, what I'm trying to get us to do is take seriously the way the Bible uses its own language. Okay? Without imposing some preconceived notions upon it, I really am trying to deal with the text of Scripture and how the Scriptures speak within the context of the scriptures. So you have the prophecy in Amos. And then in Acts chapter 15, beginning at verse 12, Paul and Barnabas have come back from their first missionary journey. They come to the Jerusalem council. They wrestle with the theological issue of whether or not Gentiles coming into the church need to be circumcised And the answer is no, they do not, because people are received into the church, not on the basis of some external ritual. They are received into the church on the basis of profession of faith in Jesus Christ as the long-awaited Messiah, whether Jew or Gentile, okay, whether Jew or Gentile. So they wrestle with this problem, and then the people want to hear about Paul's ministry, Paul and Barnabas' work out there among the Gentiles. Verse 12, all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree as it is written. Now, we've got to stop right here. We have to ask this question. What is it Paul has just been talking about? He's been talking about a ministry to the Gentiles. Now, a part of Paul's ministry to the Gentiles was to go to the synagogues and preach in the synagogues, and if there was a response, he'd keep preaching, and if there wasn't, he'd shake the dust off his feet and he'd go to the Gentiles. So Paul's ministry to the Gentiles, his ministry to the Jews, James is saying, fulfills the prophecy of Amos. So you ask the question, how is the tent of David that is fallen being rebuilt? It is being rebuilt as the gospel is preached and as people from every nation and tribe and tongue come into the tent of David. Whose tent is it? It's the tent of the greater David. This is not God. And and again, I don't want to get in trouble here. I'm not here to pick a fight, right? This is not God abandoning some purpose that failed. This is God prosecuting the purpose that he intended to prosecute, beginning at Genesis 3, Genesis 12. It spread across the whole of the Old Testament. His intent to produce a Savior who would be not the Savior of a particular people, but the Savior of the world. And the tent of David, which is fallen and which is now being rebuilt, is being rebuilt through the ministry of the Apostle Paul to Jew and Gentile. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says the wall of separation has been taken down. The things that used to distinguish and differentiate people don't anymore. There's no longer Jew. There's no longer slave. There's no longer male, no longer female. Any of those socioeconomic, ethnic, gender kinds of distinctions obliterated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the tent of David in, in, in Paul's day is being rebuilt then. And again, James cites Amos, and there's that phrase, After this I will return, and the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Okay, So you have Joel using this kind of language, looking down the corridor of history. You have Amos using this language. We see those prophecies being fulfilled in Acts 2 and Acts 15. And here's one more, and I love this. I mean, I love all of this stuff, but I mean, I love this. Isaiah 2, verses 2 and 3. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain... Of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Now, what is the mountain of the house of the Lord? What do we call it? Mount Mount Zion. Mount Zion, right? Isn't that the mountain of the Lord? Mountain of the house of the Lord built on Mount Zion. Keep that in mind. Shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. Okay, that's the prophecy. It will come to pass in the latter days, in the age to come. Okay, where is it fulfilled? Where is it fulfilled? Look at these two passages. Hebrews 1, verse 2, and Hebrews 12. Get both of these passages. Verses 18 and following. First, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Long ago, long ago. When is long ago? It's back here. Okay, it's back here long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. So when did the last days start? With the appearance of Jesus, with the arrival of Jesus. Okay, now flip over to to Hebrews 12, verses 18 and following. I just love this. I mean, I think this is incredible. He's writing to these Hebrews who have professed faith in Jesus Christ. And look at what he says about them. Look at what he says about them. For you have not come to what may be touched. And, And just as I'm reading this, ask yourself the question, what's he talking about here? You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, And darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. What's he referring to? Mount Sinai. Okay, Mount Sinai. The arrival of the nation at Mount Sinai, the giving of the law. You remember the the animals? Nothing could touch the mountain because it was holy. Why was it holy? It was holy because the Holy One of Israel came down upon it and made it holy. Okay? But, verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What I'm suggesting to you is that Hebrews, the writer of the letter to the Hebrews, is employing the imagery and the language of Isaiah chapter 2, to describe what has happened to these people who professed faith in Jesus Christ. You've come not to an earthly thing, not to an earthly city, not an earthly mountain, not an earthly temple. You've come to that greater reality to which the earthly images and pictures and symbols point. You've come to the true Mount Zion, the true heavenly Jerusalem, or the true Jerusalem, which is the heavenly Jerusalem. And again, this is all first century stuff. This is not way down the corridor of history. It's some future, undisclosed, unknown, undetermined time. Okay, So point, what are we saying here? What we're saying is that the, the, the Bible basically views the unfolding purpose of God, views time in this way. There is this age and there is the age to come. But what the Old Testament couldn't see is this already, and not yet aspect to the appearing of the last days, the appearing of the kingdom of God. So what you have, if we can put it this way, you have the Old Testament period, and then you have the coming of the long-awaited Messiah. And with the coming of the long-awaited Messiah, you have the inauguration of the last days, the latter days, at that time, afterward, that point, that time in history to which the prophets were looking. So you have the inauguration of the age to come, especially with the ascension of Jesus Christ, his enthronement at the right hand of the Father, the outpouring of the Spirit, who is the Spirit of the age to come. You have the outpouring of the Spirit. You have the arrival of the age to come. It is here, but it is not fully realized. It's another already-not-yet thing. And so this age actually continues, while at the same time the age to come has been inaugurated. And so you have, you, have, you have both running parallel until that time when Jesus returns. And when he returns, this age ends, and the age to come continues into eternity, fully consummated, fully realized in all of its blessings and all of its benefits. But it's inaugurated here. We are in the last days, and we have been in the last days since the ascension of Jesus since the day of Pentecost. And the last days will continue until the last day. Okay? The last days will have a last day. And if you'll flip back to Joel chapter 2, this will be the last last thing we'll look at. If you'll flip back to Joel chapter 2 and just look at the 30th verse... Okay, remember verses 28 and 29, it shall come to pass afterward, the Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. And right on the heels of that is verse 30, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. The latter days will continue until the day of the Lord. And whenever you have the Old Testament talking about the day of the Lord, the day when the Lord enters into judgment with the nations, there are all these sort of cosmological descriptions of that day with things melting and exploding and falling apart and unraveling and and all of that sort of thing, the kind of thing that you see here in Joel uh, 2.30. So the latter days will continue until the day of the Lord, Joel 2.30, and at the day of the Lord, Christ will return, and he will enter into judgment with the nations, and the sheep and the goats will be separated, and a whole lot of other things are going to go on, kind of coterminous and simultaneously. But at the return of Jesus Christ, this age comes to an end, and the eternity for which we long comes to full fruition. Okay? Now, I'm, I'll, I'll stop there except to say, remember Revelation nine. That this whole period of time between the advents, I'm, I'm convinced, is a period of tribulation. It is the tribulation. It is the period in which the church suffers. It is the time in which people die for their faith. It is the time in which people like John were imprisoned. John said that he was a participant in the tribulation. Didn't he? I mean, didn't he say that way back here in 95, 94, 93? Okay. So, and this is the period of time, I'll suggest to you, we'll get to this eventually, but this is the period of time, this whole period of time here, this red box right here, this is the period of time that is described in Revelation 12. It is the period of time in which the people of God are being nourished, preserved, and kept in the wilderness. Look, we're not home. We're in the wilderness. But God is preserving us and keeping us in the wilderness until the great day of the Lord when all of this comes to a conclusion and we enter into the full enjoyment of our salvation. Okay, that's a ton of stuff. It's five after six. Um, I'll take, yeah, five after six, yeah, I think. So, um, you know, at some point I'm going to want to leave, but I'm happy to answer questions and interact with you for as long as you want to. You want to stay, but maybe, maybe just a couple of questions from, from out here. Comments, questions. Yes. Right now we are being preserved at right. the, end of the end times. Right. Right. Yeah. And I, I mean, I have no idea. I mean, Jesus said he didn't know when the day was coming um so i have no idea how long this age the black line i don't have i have no idea how long that is going to last and neither did john so will you comment on Matthew 24 sure yeah the the question is the quite the question is will i comment on Matthew 24 yeah yeah now, there's, there's a ton that could be said about this and, and needs to be said about this. But let me, just, let me just suggest to you that in verses 3 through 14, Jesus is giving instruction to his disciples, but he's not only giving instruction to his disciples, he's describing what is going to be the experience of the church across this whole period of time. This has application, I, I believe, to us. OK, Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. I mean, if, if I had time, I'd kind of put this thing in its context, but I don't. So but Jesus, they asked the question, when is this going to happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? Okay, now that's the that's the question. What will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the sign of the close of the age? So he's answering that question. And basically what he's saying is, it's not this. 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 It's this. this." Okay? Listen. Uh, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. That's been happening for a couple thousand years. Happened back then, happening now. And they will lead many astray. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. They will deliver you up to tribulation. There's that word again. And put you to death. That's not referring to a particular group of people way down the corridor of history, way down at the end of history. That's Jesus speaking to his disciples. They will give you up to tribulation. Put you to death. You'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. That began to happen in the experience of the disciples. Okay, You'll be hated by all nations for my, my name's sake. Many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. By the way, a couple of passages where, where Paul actually takes up this language of the last days um, are 1 Timothy 4.1 and 2 Timothy 3.1, passages in which Paul, the pastor, is giving pastoral counsel to Timothy and is basically telling him not to be alarmed when the love of many grows cold, when people turn on each other, when people betray the faith. Don't be alarmed by that. Those are characteristic features of the last days. Okay? When, okay? I'm, I'm trying to immerse myself in the language of the Bible. Okay? And that's what Jesus is saying to his disciples. Um, many will fall away; they will betray one another and hate one another. Paul experienced that. Timothy experienced that. The churches experienced that across this whole period. False prophets will arrive will arise and lead many astray and Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved and Then verse fourteen and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Then the end will come. So what Jesus seems to be saying, I mean, it seems to me the thing he's saying here is, if you want to know what's, what's the answer to the question, when will these things be, what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age, this is the sign, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Okay. The only part of the prophecy it hasn't been is the is the yeah, exactly is is the is the dissemination of the gospel as a testimony to the nations. But we it feels like we're getting kind of close. So you know if I want to be hopeful about this thing, if I want to get Jesus to come back quicker, kind of thing, then let's get the gospel out there, so that that last rebellious stupid sinner can repent. So that this, you know, the curtain can come down and we can all enjoy the eternity that's waiting for us. Um, okay.
1: Last, uh, last time we, we had this class on Revelation, you were looking at Re- Revelation chapter 12, though. So I read further and from verses 15 and 16. It talks about the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman said it so that she might cause her to be swept away with the flood. Is that some some kind of?
0: Uh, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. Um, the flood of Noah? Either the flood of Noah or probably, it's probably, I think, more likely an image uh, from the Exodus, again, that the, that the, the waters of, of the Red Sea were a means of deliverance for the people of God and they were a means of judgment for the opponents of the people of God. So, I th- In fact, if you read chapter 12, um, there's a whole lot of allusion back to the Exodus. The imagery of the Exodus is throughout that chapter. Okay, it's, it's 6.13. Um, if you want to come up and, and ask me other questions about this, again, what am I doing here? I'm trying to put the Revelation... the the book, the Revelation, in this broader context, okay, the broader context of how time unfolds, how God's redemptive purpose unfolds across um, uh, the whole of the Bible from the beginning to the end, and and just using a handful of examples of how the Bible uses this language of the last days, latter days, etc. okay? Yes, sir? Is there anything we should read in here preparing for next week? Um, if you have a copy of uh, Let's Study Revelation, we'll look at the first chapter next week. So I think that's chapter one of uh, of um, Derek Thomas. Yeah. If you have that book and you kind of want to follow along, we'll look at chapter one next week. We get a vision next week of the glorified Christ. Okay, it's beautiful, beautiful thing to see. Revelation
1: should we read or have the Bible if we don't have the book
0: for next week? Um, read chapter one, Marcy. Yeah, and, and let me just say this again. This is a closing comment. I, I would really encourage you to read the whole book in one sitting. I, I know that seems crazy, but the more you read it and get familiar with its flow and how it works, I think the more beneficial these discussions will be. So I would just suggest that you really familiarize yourself with the book. Just read it and reread it and reread it, Okay. All right, let's pray. 6.15. Lord, um, this, is, this is so exhilarating and so comforting and so encouraging uh, to know that you are Lord over all, uh, that there is no power on the earth, no power in the heavens, uh, which does not come under your absolute and final control. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that you will continue to reign until you present the kingdom to the Father, uh, so that God may be all in all. Thank you for that. And please give us the grace of perseverance as we wait for that glorious day when your return will bring an end to this age and the perfection and completion of the age to come. Uh, We look forward, Lord Jesus, to that day. And we pray in your name. Amen.